This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 29th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Welcome. Coming up, Monocle's Latin American affairs correspondent, Lucinda Elliott, will preview tomorrow's crucial presidential runoff in Brazil. Also ahead on today's programme, the historian, broadcaster and screenwriter Alex von Tonzelman will be leafing through the day's papers. And then we'll be handing over to our contributing editor, Andrew Muller, to find out about some of the week's other news stories. Former Prime Minister Boris Johnson had bolted back from his most recent holiday when his old job became available, displaying an alacrity and commitment that generally escaped him when actual crises interrupted his loafing during his stints in various ill-deserved offices. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday with me, Georgina Godwin. First, though, here are the headlines. Brazil's right-wing president Jair Bolsonaro and his leftist election rival Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva traded barbs late on Friday in their final televised debate ahead of Sunday's tense runoff vote. Polls suggest Lula is the slight favourite to come back for a third term, capping a remarkable political renaissance after his jailing on graft convictions that were overturned. But Bolsonaro outperformed opinion polls in the first round vote this month, and many analysts say the election could go either way. Canada will sell a government-backed five-year bond to raise money for Ukraine, the first country to do so, and it will impose new sanctions on 35 Russian individuals, including Gazprom executives, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said on Friday. Canada has one of the world's biggest Ukrainian diasporas outside of countries that border Ukraine, and the community has lobbied Ottawa to impose increasingly strict sanctions against Russia since it invaded Ukraine in February. Finland and Sweden will join NATO at the same time, their Prime Ministers said on Friday, presenting a united front to Turkey, which has raised questions about both their applications. The Nordic neighbours asked to join the alliance in May in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but ran into objections from Turkey, which accused the two of harbouring groups it deems terrorists. And American rock pioneer Jerry Lee Lewis, who was torn between his Bible-thumping upbringing and his desire to make hell-raising rock and roll with such hits as Great Balls of Fire and Whole Lot of Shaking going on, has died at the age of 87. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Now, as we've just been hearing, Brazil's presidential election will reach its conclusion tomorrow when we'll know if the far-right incumbent, Jair Bolsonaro, or his left-wing challenger, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, will rule the country for the next four years. The pair faced each other in their final televised debate just a few years ago. Well, let's get the uh, uh, latest now with... uh, Did I say years? I did, didn't I? I meant hours. Let's get the latest now with Monocle's Latin America correspondent. Uh, That's Lucinda Elliot, good morning to you, Lucinda. Good morning, Georgina. Lovely to be on the show. I expect it feels like years ago for you because you've probably been up all night. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. um, how did the debate go? Did either of them do enough to sway voters? 
I mean, content-wise, Georgina, it was pretty depressing. I mean, both sides during this campaign have resorted to disinformation and low blows, which, again, we saw last night in an aggressive exchange between the two candidates, who actually reportedly both had media training for this. Um, the debate took place in Rio on the main nightly national news channel, Globo, and, like previous debates, really focused very little on future policies and plans. And instead, there were these accusations thrown and no real answers as to how they will you know, bring down poverty or address a global slowdown or climate change. I think broadly, if you watch last night without knowing anything about polls or even knowing Portuguese, you'd guess that they were both very desperate not to lose and that possibly Bolsonaro was behind. He sounded pretty exasperated while Lula was calmer, he was sort of more relaxed, and he looked like a front runner. But polls, as you said at the top of the show, have shown or suggested that Lula has a narrow lead, but such surveys had really underestimated Bolsonaro's support in the first round vote earlier this month. And we'll also have more polls out today. And I mean, if Lula does win, which Latin American nation's most likely to benefit from a change in government? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, first, Brazil is the biggest economy in the region, which makes this race more significant, perhaps, than others. Um, and Brazil's biggest trading partner in South America is still Argentina. It's number three or four after China in the US. And Buenos Aires does have a left-wing Peronist government at present. So with Lula in power, could be set to benefit when it comes to their commercial relationship or when it comes to perhaps foreign policy with a more united and, and welcoming stance from Mercosur, the trading bloc. But more broadly, I think a new government under Lula, some observers are saying, could be more ideologically significant for Latin America, but not necessarily economic. I mean, for the first time in at least a decade, you'll have left-leaning administrations or coalitions in, as I say, in Argentina, in Chile, Bolivia, up in Colombia and Peru, leaving only really the smaller countries of Paraguay, Ecuador and Uruguay with conservative leaders. But they're not really working together commercially and they are all heavily dependent on China. Mm. Now, the reliability of the voting system has been repeatedly questioned by Bolsonaro throughout the campaign. What happens if the result is contested or exceptionally close? Well, a Brazilian friend actually asked me this week if there really is a third round if Bolsonaro loses on Sunday, which demonstrate there, demonstrates there's a lot of misinformation floating around. And the answer to that is no. If Bolsonaro loses on Sunday and tries to contest the result, his focus will likely be less on the reliability of Brazil's electronic voting system as there is strong evidence against his claims. And instead, his complaints could centre on these court rulings against fake news. Um, He'll likely allege that these rulings made the election unfair or, or rigged, which in some cases Bolsonaro could well have a point. Lula also had some rulings go against him during this campaign, and it's unclear what would happen in that case. But I imagine even if there is an outright winner this weekend, there will be big questions around these rulings and, and how to deal with fake news in Brazil. And what about violence? I mean, that too, you know, there are obviously we, we, we hope for the best on Sunday, but, you know, political violence, levels of political violence um, have been pretty shocking in, in this campaign. Um, and if, you know, Bolsonaro wins, there will be an awful lot of people who are disappointed and vice versa. Um, and whoever wins the election will also face governing a deeply divided nation and will also have to deal with a highly fractured Congress 
which is leaning broadly to the right. Mm. Uh, Finally, what should listeners be looking out for once votes are in and a leader appointed? And when's that likely to be? When will we get those results? So much like in the US, um, there are roughly two more months until the next leader assumes office. January 1st is the date. I mean, not ideal for journalists who, like me, last in the last round, spent their New Year's Eve in Brasilia and had a very early night. Um, But, I mean, given actually that Brazil is a big football nation, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the headlines in the coming weeks are possibly dominated by the World Cup in Qatar. Um, And so either way for both candidates, that might give them a boost or, or a relief to this very tense race as attention turns to Brazil's chances at at winning the tournament. And I'm told that in every recent World Cup where Brazil Brazil actually won the title, uh, Lula was leader. So it's all to play for. Yeah. Um, Well, we're going to follow that with with, uh, our correspondent, uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, on Monday morning. Will we have the results by then? Yes. As we say, it's an electronic voting system in Brazil. So the results come in extremely quickly, considering how many millions do cast their vote tomorrow. Excellent. Lucinda, thank you very much. That was our Latin Affairs correspondent, Lucinda Elliott. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday. Join Monocle in Dallas this November for the Chiefs 2022. This is Monocle's unique global gathering for the sharpest minds in business. Hosted by Monocle's chairman, Tyler Brule and Editor-in-Chief Andrew Tuck. It will convene chiefs in various offices, entrepreneurs and decision makers to share practical advice on how to steer companies. If you want to survive in today's world, you do have to do great brand building, great storytelling that tells everybody, this is my brand. Bringing together 100 international delegates and 10 speakers, the Chiefs guarantees attendees fresh connections, keen insights and expert analysis from around the world. I think we have a situation where sustainability becomes an element of your business. It's not how you spend your money, but how you make your money. The Chiefs takes place at the Thompson Dallas Hotel in the fastest growing city in the U.S. on Tuesday 8th and Wednesday 9th November. To find out more, read about the fantastic speakers and book your ticket, head to monocle.com forward slash events now. The Chiefs 2022. See you in Dallas. Coming up to 11 minutes past nine here in London, where we're broadcasting to you live from Midori House. I'm Georgina Godwin. This is Monocle on Saturday, and I'm joined now for a look at the day's papers uh, by the historian, uh, film script writer, broadcaster, uh, entrepreneur, uh, <laughs> Alex von Tonzelman. Alex, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, now, of course, we've just been talking about Brazil, and you're on your way to Peru. That's very exciting. It's very exciting. I'm going to speak at the Hay Festival Arequipa, which is run by the sort of Hay, Hay Literary Festival in the UK. It has these kind of global outposts, particularly in um, in the Spanish-speaking world. And so I'm very excited because, I mean, I've been to Latin America before, but not to Peru. So this is very exciting for me to go on my first trip. No, absolutely. Now, that whole sort of global side of Hay is run by uh, Cristina Fuentes, who is yes. an absolute powerhouse. A completely <laughs> wonderful woman. So, yes, she's sort of set up. I mean, you know, there's a, there's one in Spain, there's one in Cartagena in Colombia, which I think you've been to. I've been to 
watched that a couple yeah. of times. It was fantastic. Wonderful. Yeah, I interviewed uh, Brian Eno there and also Phil Manzanera on a, on another year. So, I mean, and it's just this wonderful walled town. But the one thing you do get an impression of, of course, is that the old city in Cartagena is beautiful and people who live there have fabulous lifestyles. They're lovely villas. Outside of that, it's a completely different story. And wow. I think that's what we're looking at in Brazil, too, is this very big divide between the kind of old, established, urban, uh, wealthy, and then the huge rural poor. Yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think in some ways, you know, looking forward for all of us, I mean, certainly in the UK and the US as well, I was very interested in a report the FT did recently pointing out that although these countries are very wealthy overall, the divisions of wealth are enormous. Mm. So the hu- the gap between the rich and the poor is very, very large, much bigger than in most European countries, for instance. And I think that's a real focus going forward. Of course, it's true in places, uh, you know, the countries you mentioned in, in Latin America, um, it's certainly true in places like Russia. It's also true, however, in the countries that we're living in and broadcasting from. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I mean, one thing I do like about Hay is the fact that they address that across their programme. It's not a, a kind of elitist uh, thing. They, they really encourage uh, participants, but also audiences from across that divide. And I think that's one of the incredibly healthy things that culture can achieve for us. I really hope so. What yeah. a brilliant, positive way to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking um, of culture, because of course that is your, your area, um, you are about to launch a book club. Yes, I'm very excited about this as well. So um, I have a company called Silk Road Slippers with three friends, uh, Alexandra Pringle, um, Faiza Khan and Nazreen Malik. And we are sort of world travelling um women who love adventure and so we're starting you know a book club kind of attached to this um so we sort of mainly work on selling handicrafts and things from around the world but uh, but the idea of this really is to sort of underscore that idea of lifelong discovery and adventure so our first book we're really excited is Carmela Shamsi's new novel um she's wonderful so she's going to be speaking to us on Monday we've got a virtual event and tickets are on Eventbrite if people would like to join in and speak to Carmela about it's, writing an adventure it's such a lovely book best of friends um and I, I was really touched by it Carmela and I had a long conversation about it because both of us have very intense friendships with one female and have been their friends for all of our lives. And, and sadly, it didn't come off because we ran out of time, but we wanted to do a, a kind of big Meet the Writers interview where we both brought in our best friend and oh, <laughs> had a conversation idea. about it around, around her book, which is about this kind of enduring friendship, but how these women kind of completely kind of diverge in, in later life. It's a, it's a great, great book. And Silk... Uh, Silk Road Slippers is a lovely, lovely concept. I know I've bought stuff from you before, you and have. some of that comes out of uh, <laughs> some of that comes out of Lahore, and that's that's again where we have a, a, a we go back to this whole literary festival idea because uh, the Lahore Lit Fest is happening early next year. I think it's February, isn't it? It is. I'm hoping to be there, and me too. <laughs> hoping we'll all be there. Um, I mean, and it's really wonderful. I mean, Lahore is such a city of culture. You know, it, it's got such a kind of incredible past with that. It's so beautiful in this in the centre part. Again, I mean, of course. As you yeah. say, these cities often have multiple stories. But, I mean, I think it's a wonderful place to meet. And, you know, has I, I think uh, the booker winner, Shehan Karuna Tilaka, is also going to be there. So it looks like a very, very exciting event. Yeah, absolutely. But, of course, Lahore had some problems yesterday. Imran Khan used it as his base uh, to set off on his march to demand early elections. Uh, the whole city was kind of inundated with security forces. It's quite a tense time there uh, at the moment.
Speaking of tense times, America and the midterms coming up, and there's now a huge fear that there will be a lot of violence um, because of this attack on Paul Pelosi, who, of course, is the husband of the US Speaker of uh, Parliament uh, or of Congress, Nancy Pelosi. It looks like it was a targeted attack. Uh, tell us more about this because there's a, a big article in the Washington Post today. Yes, um, there's, I mean, there's coverage of it everywhere. I mean, I think this is really quite frightening. A man armed with a hammer broke into their home um, in San Francisco, seems to have smashed his way in. There's a broken window you can see in the pictures. Um, And attacked Paul Pelosi, who's in his 80s, um, while shouting reportedly, where's Nancy? Um, Unfortunately, Paul Pelosi, you know, well, fortunately he is expected to recover, but he suffered a skull fracture, some very serious injuries and is in hospital. And I think, you know, this is... It's so frightening, the kind of climate that is being stoked of political violence in the US, and you can see it in the rhetoric of people like Donald Trump that really have kind of pushed for this. And even yesterday, I mean, the piece in The Post um, talks about Glenn Youngkin, um, uh, who is, you know, from Virginia, who is a Republican, who responded to this attack by sort of by with this extraordinary statement of sort of like, oh, we wish him well, but we're sending her back to be with him in California. You know, and I mean, you can't follow we wish him well with but, Mm. can you really, and mean it. And, you know, I think it was very unfortunately worded. I'm sure he meant electorally he wants to send her back to California rather than, you know, in some kind of violent manner. But the kind of potential for misunderstanding there is so huge. And this has been obviously very roundly roundly condemned, but he hasn't apologised or withdrawn it. And I think we're in a really frightening moment in the US, you know, Mm. where this violence is, is... I mean, this is happening. You know, political violence has started now. So the question is, how far does it go? Well, of course, the January the 6th insurrection, some of the people who broke in uh, to the Capitol building were saying, where's Nancy? They were definitely after her. They wanted to do her serious harm. Uh, And a lot of this was stoked on social media. In fact, January the 6th was the final thing that tipped Twitter into removing Donald Trump from their platform. Now, of course, Twitter has changed hands. There's a fantastic piece that you found in The Guardian, very fantastic piece about Elon Musk buying Twitter. Absolutely wicked piece by Hamilton Nolan, which is so funny, actually, as a piece of commentary on it um, and talking about sort of why Musk has bought Twitter and all of this. And I think I think he's right, the writer, in the sort of general um, slant that although this does have extremely serious implications, actually, for the political landscape and so on, because really most of the world's politicians are on Twitter and use it as a broadcast thing. It's actually by far from the most used social network, but it is possibly the most influential just because of the politicians and journalists and commentators who are on it and very accessible. Um, but, you know, he's saying sort of that this is possibly less really of a kind of devious plan and more really of kind of Elon Musk really being, I mean, as as he says, um, you know, he absolutely loves Twitter and it's really sort of, you know, a, a hobby horse for him. And, say, and Hamilton Nolan's line is, you know, he reveals to all of us there that the richest man in the richest nation of the history of the world is an unfunny meme guy, easily <laughs> seduced by the same sort of ideas that grab the minds of Reddit scrolling 13-year-old boys. And I think it is that you sort of get this real sense. I mean, the, I think the fascinating thing about Twitter is it's incredibly hard to hide who you really are if you interact with people on Twitter. And you can see with Musk that he's sort of desperate, actually, to be lauded by these, you know, alt-right kind of, you know, very posturing macho boys. And he sort of fits into that. He's always trying to make jokes and they're always a bit lukewarm. Like when he bought Twitter, he walked into the office with a sink. He got a sink and said, let that sink in a sort of dad joke. You know, but (laughs) one that he obviously thought was so funny that he'd actually gone and got a sink 
and oh stage God. this whole thing. <laughs> and, you know, so he's sort of desperate to go viral with things like this. And I, But I do think, I mean, you know, if you look at his past career or something, you know, we're... I don't think any of us would be too surprised if he sort of gets bored with the reality of it in a couple of years and hands it off yeah. to somebody else. But I mean, it, as the article points out, of course, he was kind of forced to buy it in the end, mm. having tried to withdraw from it, but then there was going to be this big court case. Uh, then he forced to buy it. The first thing he does, of course, is sack the CEO and various top people. Now he's going to be forced to give them huge payouts. He's really struggling to keep Twitter as a place that's uh, appealing for advertisers because otherwise he's going to lose serious amounts of money. I think he's pretty much guaranteed to lose serious money. We paid $44 billion for it. I mean, most people think that's overvalued by about $20 billion. I mean, that's a lot of money. <laughs> and if you consider, I mean, again, they point out in the piece that, you know, Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post for $250 million. I mean, really, that's a much better buy, quite honestly. Extraordinary. Uh, now, Musk has got this thing about how he is all for free speech and this, it's all about, you know. But of course, we know that he tries to shut down dialogue, a negative dialogue around himself. Another place, of course, where we see this freedom of speech really being clamped down upon and perhaps the emergence of a totalitarian state as we've seen in the the recent Congress is China. Absolutely. Well, I was really interested in a piece in the New York Times this weekend um, which I'm just finding... I've got it here. um, About Wang Xiaodong who is kind of an old-school Chinese propagandist, really. He's a writer and he's somebody who has been very, very prominent really since about the 80s. He's now in his 60s, really pushing Chinese nationalism, really kind of hammering it, you know, that you've got to defy America. Very, very militant point of view, very strong kind of propaganda point of view. And he's been, you know, very prominent in all of that. The interesting thing is he's now sort of almost de-radicalised himself. He's now out there criticising uh, Chinese nationalism for being, I mean, he's in his words, I never told them to go this crazy. You know, he's and not criticising, important to say, the government directly. He tends to criticise sort of other social media users really to try to, you know, because that's sort of the avenue that one can go down rather than, of course, directly criticising the government. And he's now saying they need sort of rapprochement with the US and all of this, a completely different angle. And I think it's kind of really interesting to see this happen, that how in a society where clearly you cannot speak completely freely, how you can nonetheless sort of have this discourse in some form or other. Um, And I I think I really recommend um, anyone who's interested reading the piece in The New York Times today, because I think it's, it's sort of just a very interesting thing on the kind of how this kind of Chinese internal discourse and culture has developed since the 80s and, you know, is now continuing to uh, develop. But I mean, of course, lots of his previous supporters, um, Mr Wang's previous supporters who really loved his kind of fire-breathing rhetoric are now furious with him and calling him a traitor and saying that he's, you know, um, say, you know, really kind of uh, saying that he's now a problem for the whole country. So, it's interesting what space exists, I think, for that conversation. Absolutely. Now, China, of course, you'd think would be quite sort of peaceful and serene, given that uh, many of the population are Buddhists. In fact, the, one of the largest statues in the world is the Spring Temple uh, Buddha in China. But that is about to be completely eclipsed by the Shiva <laughs> statue yes. uh, in India. <laughs> Tell us about this. Yes, there's a wonderful piece in the Hindu this morning in India about the tallest Shiva statue in the world, uh, which is about to be unveiled in uh, Rajasthan, quite near Udaipur, uh, for anyone who knows it. This statue is 369 feet tall, which actually I think makes it a little bit 
small, a bit, little bit smaller than the Spring Temple Buddha. But I think it goes in at number four on the list of tallest statues in the world. Um, India has the tallest statue in the world, which is the Statue of Unity, which is a, a huge statue of Vallabhbhai Patel, who was Deputy Prime Minister under Nehru and kind of one of the really big independence leaders. Um, and that is absolutely massive. But yeah, this Shiva Murti, the Shiva statue is absolutely colossal. I mean, it is going to be so enormous. And I absolutely love this piece. I just enjoyed it so much because, um, you know, they talk about this very sort of wonderful religious tourism and how this sort of statue is very important religious motive. And then it sort of finishes with this paragraph about the venue around the statue will host bungee jumping, zip line, go kart, <laughs> a food court, adventure park and a jungle cafe. And I thought, well, how perfect. After your reverence, off you go to the jungle cafe. Yeah, absolutely. You can do zip wiring in a mindful way. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> I mean, so there's there's something very interesting in here about the collision of the uh, serene and the temporal. <laughs> uh, Alex, wishing you very good luck on your travels uh, to Peru. Thank you. And I'm quite sure we'll we'll end up in Lahore together early next year. Inshallah. That is the historian and broadcaster Alex von Tunzelman. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday. And finally, on today's programme, we're going to join our contributing editor, Andrew Muller, for his take on another manic week in the newsroom. We learned this week the identity of the United Kingdom's new Prime Minister. Do not adjust your preferred audio device. You have not mistakenly downloaded the What We Learned monologue we wrote eight weeks back, nor have we mistakenly uploaded same. Though it would be colossally ironic, of course, if you or we had. It's like the years I have waited for this moment. Mallet. We will now be needing some eerie fortune teller sort of music. Because eight weeks ago in that What We Learned monologue, we made the following observation, the linking gag of which now appears imbued with irrepressible. We learned after a Conservative Party leadership election, which may have taken more of our time than her premiership will, that Liz Truss had nudged out her final remaining rival, Rishi Sunak. <laughs> You will have to take our word for this, as that monologue was never broadcast due to national mourning-y reasons prevailing at the time, but it's in there. It is. <coughs> you can't prove it wasn't. OK, okay. fair yeah. enough, but let's move yeah. on quickly. I'll give you that, yeah. I guess. Anyway. We learned that the UK's latest Prime Minister of the Month is Rishi Sunak, who has struggled heartwarmingly into 10 Downing Street from supremely unlikely origins. He is only the second UK Prime Minister to have attended Winchester College. <laughs> Indeed, the first old Wickhamist Prime Minister was Henry Addington, first Viscount Sidmouth, who served from 1801 to 1804. He was the son of a doctor who became a Conservative politician after marrying into money and whose dogmatic pursuit of a low-tax economy was continually thwarted by pointless and inane quarrelling with Europe. Verily, times have changed. 
And we learned that the thinly veiled subtext of Sunak's premiership was to be, I told you so, you morons. Some mistakes were made. Not born of ill will or bad intentions. Quite the opposite, in fact. But mistakes nonetheless. Listeners whose will to pay attention to British politics has not terminally ebbed amid recent nonsenses will recall that Sunak was the candidate passed over eight ludicrous weeks ago by the Conservative Party's membership in favour of last month's Prime Minister and future pub quiz answer Liz Truss, who checked out as in fairness many of us have when given the boot before the end of our probationary period with a harumph of, I was right all along to hell with you all, it's your loss, you'll be sorry when I'm famous. From my time as Prime Minister, I am more convinced than ever that we need to be bold and confront the challenges that we face. As the Roman philosopher Seneca wrote, it's not because things are difficult that we do not dare, it's because we do not dare that they are difficult. So we also learned what last Tuesday's entry was on the quote of the day calendar Truss got from a barely interested aunt last Christmas. We learned, however, that the new broom which Sunak claimed to be brandishing was arguably somewhat thin of bristle. Sweeping noises. You're doing literal sweeping noises. Righto. For we learned that the headline of a startlingly minimal cabinet reshuffle was the overturning of arguably the only sensible decision his predecessor made, i.e. sacking Home Secretary Suella Braverman following a security breach. Braverman, whose spoken rhetoric generally sounds like it was composed using a Daily Mail headline-themed magnetic poetry kit, was restored to the Home Office after six days in the cooler. So we learned that Braverman's legions of subversive, treacherous and imaginary enemies. It's the Labour Party. It's the Lib Dems. It's the Coalition of Chaos. It's the Guardian reading, to tofu eating, wokarati, dare I say, the anti-growth coalition. Must now regroup. Come on, big tofu, you can do this. We also learned something of the future plans of the man who, it turned out, would not be king. Former Prime Minister oh, Boris Johnson had bolted back from his most recent holiday when his old job became available, displaying an alacrity and commitment that generally escaped him when actual crises interrupted his loafing during his stints in various ill-deserved offices. We learned, or at least had to take his word for it, that while Johnson had necessary support from his fellow MPs, he had selflessly decided that returning to number 10 would be inopportune, at which we learned that roughly one billion people on Twitter all thought they were the first to think of the gag about the rarity of Boris Johnson pulling out of anything. He has lots of children, do you see? <coughs> we wouldn't open with it either. And indeed, and we'd appreciate due credit for this, we didn't. We learned that, instead, Johnson now intended to work upon his prime ministerial memoirs... No, don't. No. 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 And his long-delayed book about Shakespeare. No, please, please don't. Please no. don't. Don't hear it. Oh, God, Andrew... An understandable response. It seems that you, too, have already learned via Johnson's dreadful previous book on Winston Churchill that Johnson has a predilection for writing his subjects as exceedingly thinly veiled avatars of himself. 
We learned that we must therefore be braced for Johnson's self-regarding analyses of such characters as Henry V, widely traduced as self-indulgent dilettante, rises to statesmanlike heights during European conflict, Julius Caesar, visionary leader stabbed in the back by vindictive bastards who'd be nothing without him, and Othello, distinguished chieftain with much younger wife led to downfall by manipulative treachery of ungrateful lieutenant. We can't wait either, and in keeping with the unusually erudite tone of this week's monologue, would now like a sound effect evoking an exit pursued by a bear. <coughs> One for the winter's tail heads there. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Many thanks to Andrew. And that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hull. And the programme returns next weekend, but don't forget to tune in to tomorrow's edition of Monocle on Sunday, which airs at 10am Zurich time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>